0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Susan Turnbull. On behalf of myself and my co-chair, Jean Holm, we'd like to welcome you to Session 7 of the NASA Ontology Knowledge Management mini-series, focusing on the intersection of ontology, knowledge management, and decision support. Uh, This is the seventh of an eight-part series that began in October. And we'll conclude next month. We're delighted to have you uh, join us this afternoon. And we're pleased to welcome Professor Yokai Bankler to lead our discussion this afternoon with his presentation on cooperation, human systems design, and peer-to-production. And I believe his remarks will be of keen interest to this audience that reflects many individuals who are working and gaining experience in virtual organizations and I would say beginning to experience the benefits of some of the concepts that uh, our Professor Bankler has introduced us to. Uh, Professor Benkler, Yokai Benkler, is the Berkman Professor of Entrepreneurial Legal Studies at Harvard and faculty co-director of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. Uh, Previously, he was a professor of law at Yale. I had the honor of meeting Professor Benkler some years ago, and I have always been extremely impressed with the depth of his thinking and the clarity of his writing. He uh, navigates many, many different uh, disciplines beyond uh, law to include economy, political science, cyber infrastructure. And... As he draws from many of these scholarly and popular domains, he's able to write and and speak about new potentials at a very deep level but in a way that brings great clarity to us. And just as an example, his recent book, The Wealth of Networks, How Social Production Transforms Markets and Freedom in Year 2006, was honored with prestigious awards from the American Political Science Association for the best book on science, technology, and politics. He was also awarded the best book on award for this book in another domain, Social and Ethical Relevance in Communications Policy Research. And this was also named the best business book about the future. Professor Benkler also has received in 2007 the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Pioneer Award and the Public Knowledge IP3 Award in 2006. For additional background, uh, you can uh, look at this site, and uh, I would now uh, ha- be happy to uh, welcome Professor Binkler to begin his talk, and thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me, and thanks for that very generous introduction. What I want to talk about today is, if you look at the first slide, is is cooperation, human systems design, and peer production. And I'll tap at the end of each slide so that people can follow along, and occasionally I'll identify the top. So we can move to the first substantive slide. Um, I want to talk about four things and their interrelationship. The first is cooperation, then loosely coupled systems, human agency, or freedom, and change and unpredictability, and how these work together. Let me start with three stories. The first is the story of the GM uh, Fremont plant, which shut down in 1980 after having uh, one of the highest degrees of absenteeism uh, in the whole General Motors system, uh, uh, high-quality failures, it reopened two years later uh, as the uh, uh new American uh motor uh, uh plant, uh the NUMI plant, which was a joint venture between Toyota and uh, GM with practically the entire same union leadership, almost the entire same uh uh worker uh 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 group. Um, but under a radically changed uh, model of production and with new understandings about the relative roles of uh, each individual structured in team production, within a couple of years it became uh, the most productive plant in North America. Uh, it has remained uh, the most or one of the most productive plants in North America ever since with very high levels of worker mo- motivation in surveys in the studies in the year later. Uh, the thing I want to emphasise here is that is the intersection of multiple systems that implemented one set of human relations and the changeover in these multiple systems in another human relationship that worked from a relatively disaffected and non innovative workforce that had no freedom to innovate and learn about the process, nor freedom to teach the organization about the process, to one that allowed greater autonomy of individual workers to innovate, to talk about their innovation, to work together as a team, but also to create a much greater effective uh, commitment. So organizationally, we saw the shift from Taylorism, uh, embedded—that is to say, uh, scientific management as understood a, a, a century ago as process engineering down to the level of every single movement with lots of engineers on the floor trying to specify precisely every movement of every employee in every second and time it and optimize it, embedded in a technical system, which was Ford's assembly uh, uh, plan, and then reflected in the legal framework through the National Labor Relations Act, um, with the relative role of the unions, with a very oppositional structure, with highly negotiated and structured uh, role definitions in the union agreements, shifting over to a new organizational model, Toyota Production System, a new legal arrangement as the union negotiated a very different, much smaller number of role definitions, greater commitment to long-term uh, 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 uh avoidance of, of, um, um, uh, lay, uh, of layoffs uh, where possible, and implemented in an organizational technological system with the assembly line that's organized around teams with multiple people doing multiple tasks and rotating them as opposed to one person doing only one task with eventually uh, quality circles. Um, so what we see is a transition from a tightly bound Fully specified system that doesn't allow learning over time and engenders relative distance to a more loosely coupled system relying much more on a cooperative dynamic and much more on individual learning and collaborative communication and engagement around the task, again embedded in a very different uh, contractual setting. The next story, which I'll spend less time on, is perhaps more familiar to people. That's the transition in the technical system from the old model of the AT&T system with its highly controlled infrastructure up until the 50s, even ownership, all the way out to the terminal, all the way out to the telephone system that one rented from Western Electric, uh, uh, all the way to... Uh, um, um, the internet, and the end-to-end architecture. Again, what we see here is the move from an ambition to have a fully engineered system controlled by a single company from its end to its center and oriented through the enter with an organizational model around that, with a legal model of common carriage and regulated common carriage, shifting to a network of network, a loose structure where a lot of the innovation comes from the edges by people playing with things with greater degrees of freedom rather than having to ask permission from the core. And similarly, as we move to look at Britannica and Wikipedia, again we see the same thing. We move from one structure of understanding knowledge, how it's produced, who produces it, under what, uh, uh, under what conditions of authority, incentive, uh uh and and communication and we have the book we have the multiple book set we have copyright protecting it we have academic authorization and a reference to uh well-known people from the very start from the from the 19th century edition the emphasis on contributions from uh, uh luminaries of the time as opposed to wikipedia in an infrastructure that is much more flexible with an authority structure that is fundamentally um, um, lacking in respect for authority that's based other than the practice within the community, uh, completely uh, free and open uh, to the public based on uh, motivations that don't require payment at all but are instead uh, attracted from the common uh, will or or the individual will to contribute and the common will to uh, negotiate together. And structures of governance then that come out of that community uh, based on a commitment to norms, and particularly the norm of the neutral point of view, uh, as well as the practices of, of consensus. My point in identifying all of these three is how many different domains in which we see the same basic uh, point, which is transition from systems that are more tightly controlled, and require either implement greater authority in the form of organizational authority, legal authority, or, or, or cultural authority uh, in much more tightly bound systems that place the end users in a much more passive role to systems that engage greater cooperation, that engage, uh, but but also permit, much greater freedom of action, and therefore depend on a much more cooperative rather than controlled Dynamic. So here, I think what we need to focus on are on loosely coupled human systems. And by human systems, I, I, I use, I think, a fairly uh, standard uh, uh, definition for most of it. That is to say, routinized interactions among objects and processes, institutions and organizations, technical platforms and conceptual platforms. The critical point is that, from the perspective of the human being, that is to say, those. Systems that provide people with affordances and constraints, and affordances and constraints, again, are defined in terms of what they make people believe about what they can and can't do. That is to say, regularities of interaction that lead human beings who understand a given action as operating within a given system that possesses these regularities to believe reasonably that that action is feasible and will likely lead to the desired outcome. The constraints of a system are the inverse. They're basically the same regularities that lead to a reasonable belief that the action is infeasible or won't likely lead to the outcome. Now, of course, remember, affordances and constraints are both necessary for effective planning and action. You want to make sure that the system will or won't do certain things once you actually push a button. It's not just what it can allow you. It's also what it predictably won't allow to happen. That leaves us with the question of coupling. What does coupling mean? And if that's how you define the system, coupling is the degree of completeness and determinism with which a system characterizes its input processes and outputs to connect an action to an outcome. And of course, loose coupling then would be uh, uh, a relatively incomplete and non-deterministic relationship or at least looser uh, causal set of relationships. So together what we have is this relationship, this three-way relationship between freedom as practical human agency Loosely coupled systems and change and unpredictability. And I think what we saw in the first half, or perhaps even first three quarters, of the 20th century, was a continuous effort to achieve more tightly coupled systems, that more completely and deterministically specified the inputs, processes, and outputs of human behavior, in or constraining freedom as practical human agency, in order to optimize for what was understood to be a relatively predictable and knowable environment. When you get to the point of less knowledge, less predictability, you need to learn. When you need to learn, you need to experiment. When you need to experiment, you need to loosen up the coupling of the system. You need to allow greater freedom uh, as, as practical experimentation, trying, failing, and talking about it among human beings, which in turn leads to greater change in unpredictability because once you have human beings, you can't predict it uh, quite as well, which again leads to great, more loose coupling and more learning up until a moment at which things either do or don't break down. But that's the direction in which the cycle, I believe, is going now. Uh, so as I said, the 19th and 20th centuries focused on rationalizations through tightly bound systems. Um, in Europe, this was anchored in Bismarck's reform of government and very much Government bureaucracy led and firm bureaucracy followed. Uh, In the U.S., it was the inverse. You had Taylorism and Fordism at the beginning of the 20th century uh, leading the way for highly structured uh, uh, bureaucracies structuring the production process. And then you get the transposition of that model onto uh, government bureaucracies with the New Deal and, and progressivism and beyond. But the rationale is the same rationale. It's about as As processes become more complex, you need to try to structure them. As more people come into contact with each other, you need to try to plan and structure. You have a belief that you can do this, and you try to build ever more tightly bound systems that specify all of the inputs and all of the behaviors and all of the processes in order to manage uh, the outputs. This ends up failing, uh, or at least imperfectly succeeding, so as change in economy and society uh, uh uh bumps up against the limits of the rate of learning in these t- tightly bound systems, um, what we see uh in the uh, uh, uh in the face of rapid change and complexity is a shift toward uh, uh, Homo economicus. Essentially, we give up what happens around the, basically starting in the 50s, and this may well be colored by the uh, battle, by the ideolo- ideological battles with communism and the association of communism with uh, planning. Uh, um, uh, what we see is an effort to move away from planning, but without giving up rationalization. And the way we achieve that is by adopting a hyper-simplified model of human motivation. Uh, and behavior, which we call the rational actor model, which really uh, takes off in the 50s and 60s and becomes dominant in the 70s and the 80s and has been under intellectual attack for the last 20 years since then, but remains extremely powerful in the design of systems, particularly in public policy, which is a place that I look at uh, a lot. So we have these extreme versions like, like uh, is greed still good and the expected utility of unsafe sex for M and for F is equal to the benefits, etc. that you have here in front of you. The critical thing to see is that simplification of the human agent allows removal of the planner without losing the illusion of certainty in the mechanism. You can still specify the inputs and predict the outputs because the agents and processes are sufficiently simple, fixed, and universal. Now, as it turns out, uh, first of all, as I said, I'm not going to be the first one to, criti- to, to, to criticize markets or bureaucratic administration. There's been uh, uh, lots of critique, uh, some of it more uh, constructive, some of it more destructive, some of it more explicit, some of it more uh, 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 narrative, but really what we're seeing today uh, as we look at new books like uh, uh, Friedman's The World is Pratt, like The Wisdom of Pratt, like Economics, like uh, uh, perhaps most extensively uh, uh, Hegel and Brown's Only Sustainable Edge, what we see is a new sense of mainstream acceptability, of the inevitability of reorientation, of the relative role and advantages of markets and hierarchies, by comparison to social processes, and this is obviously uh, uh, what I also uh, wrote in, in my book from 2006 about. The critical thing that happened is that we begin to see that faster learning and innovation is increasingly seen as an imperative force uh, uh, that is an imperative forced by global scale competition and faster innovation cycles. We cannot specify an advance for planning. Similarly, we can't even specify in advance for perfect pricing. So we're constantly in a condition where we don't know exactly what people are doing. We constantly require creativity, innovation, and learning. And since you cannot go to someone and say, you know what, at 11 o'clock in the morning, were you 80% creative or 70% creative? Simply uh-huh. is impossible. What we get instead is uh, uh, the... the Introduction of systems that allow for greater learning and innovation, that are less completely, uh, less tightly bound, and uh, at the same time try to engage the intrinsic motivations of participants to uh, share their knowledge and uh, develop. Um, uh, so, as I said, this is resistant to full specification of pricing and managerial control. What we've seen in the last 15, 10 to 15 years is a very powerful instance of this more general point with the rise of networked information economy. For me, the, the critical fact about the networked information economy is the radical decentralization of inputs and processes. We have both decentralization of material resources, processing, storage and communication, we, uh, and computation. We now each have our computers with us, as well as human. Creativity, wisdom, intuition, and experience, as well as the basic capabilities to participate in the process, uh, in the processes of production—that is to say, sociability. For the first time, essentially since the industrial revolution, the most important inputs into the core economic activities of the most advanced economies are widely distributed in the population. What happens when this is true? When we now own the basic uh, uh, Components, the core components, both physical and uh, uh, intellectual and social, uh, in the hands of the population uh, broadly, um, what you see is that social action, the things we always used to do as social action, uh, shift from the periphery of the economy to becoming a stable element in the core because they are newly affected. What we used to do when we just bumped into somebody on the street and they asked us for directions, and it's just a human social act of saying, here, you can go three blocks down and and two to the left, has become the basis for something that is like uh, 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 a, uh, uh, a tourist guide or a tourist bureau, if you just think, for example, of a place like TripAdvisor. So the most obvious example is is free and open source uh, software. That's what everybody knows about and has heard about. Uh, We move from, uh, 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 you know, if anybody had said in 1995 that uh, two groups of engineers thought that creating a web server software was massively important, one of them was a bunch of volunteers and the other was Microsoft, and you said that after uh, uh, 13 years, boom, bust, bust again, uh, you'd still have more than half the market occupied by uh, uh, the software developed by the volunteers. Uh, you'd be laughed out of the room, and yet that is in fact what we see uh, with Apache, Wikipedia. We have lots and lots of arguments about how good Wikipedia really is. Is it or isn't it as good as uh, Britannica? The critical thing to remember of all of this, irrespective, and if you look obviously at the Nature article, the 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 the, the, the uh, famous or infamous, depending on who you are, an uh, 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 article in Nature that asked fully trained scientists to compare the entries on Wikipedia to those in Britannica uh, uh, on science, and practicing scientists came back with the story. that Well, they both were pretty crappy. They had all sorts of mistakes, but they weren't uh, significantly different. And to be just as crappy as Britannica when you're in the encyclopedia business is, is about as good as you get, The critical thing to see is not if this study is 100% correct or not. The critical thing to remember is that if in February of 2001, Jimmy Wales dumped 900 stubs on the web on an interface that allowed anyone to do whatever they wanted with them and paid no one to to write anything, that within less than five years it would be even plausible to run this study, much less publish it, um, uh, again would have been laughed out of the room, and yet she moves. Um, Now we've seen this domain move across the board, both in social practices and increasingly in business practices that try to open up to pull the insights and knowledge uh, uh, from around the world. So uh, uh, mainstream organizations, uh, 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 news organizations, I think this is the first instance when the BBC realized that the only photos that were available from the underground uh, uh, after the London bombings was from people with their mobile phones. Uh, they then routinized this opening up of the boundary by asking people if you move to help us make the news. Do you have a story or comment? Can you take a picture? Don't put yourself into too much dangers. Don't infringe any laws. Suddenly, the readers become potential components of the news gathering system, and recently the New York Times did the same thing and added the same feature uh, in response to Myanmar trying to find uh, information from there because there's nobody there that they have on the ground. Beyond news, we're beginning to see this approach more generally adopted for purposes of distributed creativity. So Threadless is a little company that tries to say, why should we design and tell uh, teenagers and young people what they like? Let's let them design it. And so you start a competition, and you bring people in, and they provide their own designs, and then the users vote on them, and then they can buy them once they're manufactured. Um, And they combine motivation. Some of it is about being a celebrity, a small scale celebrity. So you you wear their designs, now read their thoughts. Uh, Some of it is also about money, or at least some amount of money $2,500 in big bold letters. Again, for a designer, that's not a lot of money for the design of a shirt. For a kid who also gets the celebrity component, who also gets to be creative, this suddenly uh, becomes significant. And so what we see here is an effort to redesign the interface and the boundary between the firm and the users so as to adopt, not just to get them to buy the stuff I've designed, but actually become integral to the process of understanding uh, what is being designed. Now, there are some things that you get from uh, lots of different people collaborating that you simply can't get anywhere else. So here's a site, Learning to Love You More, that gives lots of people, that asks people to contribute various kinds of, of objects. In this case, this is a take-a-flash photo under your bed. This seems fairly uh, boring uh, uh, by itself, but as you start scrolling through uh, the examples, and you go and see one bed that's very clean, another that's different kinds of shoes, one after the other. One has got very organized books, the other is, is very uh, 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 mixed up with a, with a, with a bit of a, a shoe on top of it. The human condition suddenly is rendered collaboratively in a way that a single artist can tell us about. But there's a certain authenticity to this diversity when it comes in a way that's simply distributed. Again, the impulse is to identify the fact that there is a certain kind of collective understanding and collective learning that can only happen when you pull the different insights. And whether the insights is, are, how is my bed organized? Or whether it's, oh, I have an idea for how to fix this particular bug. Or I have an idea for something else, that matters less. It's the diversity of insight and perspective that is made feasible here. And, of course, we have YouTube uh, with regard to people bringing their own videos. But now we're beginning to see trying to be expressive with their video. But you embed it in a platform that is collaborative. So here you have a Flash-based system. Everything in terms of, of uh, uh, distribution, ultimately, is Creative Commons, where people can come and online, just like they write a Wikipedia entry, uh, article, uh, co-edit a, a video. And the company now is working with uh, Wikipedia to create the possibility of, um, uh, uh, Wiki- of, of um, uh, Wikipedia documentaries that will be embedded in the Wikipedia entries, um, uh, and we'll see how all of this goes. Um, we're seeing it adopted now in politics, where this is a Porkbusters is a is a conservative blog that identified that a particular Sunshine Act was placed on secret hold by a senator. How do we know who the secret holds? Well, tell your tell your readers, go out, each of you, and ask your own senator. And by process of elimination, as each senator says, no, it wasn't me, within days it passes both people on the liberal side and on the conservative side collaborating this and identify that it's Senator Ted Stevens and the hold is removed. Again, you take this as it were in the wild. One- and and then you see someone like Sunlight Foundation, which is a foundation dedicated to doing what I'm about to describe, taking this process of distributed watchdog or distributed citizen uh, uh, awareness um, and uh, converting it into a general platform. So here, for example, is one of the platforms that Sunlight uh, is funding is taking data from earmarks mapping it onto maps so that people can look at their own environment and say, oh, what's this little old lady's uh, house getting uh, $150,000 for? You allow people to engage in watching their own government by routinizing and structuring what came out originally as, let's all do this together. Um, And we see this in many other places. Black box voting is is an example that I gave in the book. I won't go into uh too much here. But this is a context where electronic voting machines were largely uh critiqued and and forced into some uh redesign by a distributed effort both of engineering and political organization to uh put them under scrutiny that had not been uh, uh performed by uh mainstream media organizations. Um Cambia or Bioforge is an effort to do the same thing for biology. The idea is expanding everywhere. Basically, what we're seeing are four transactional frameworks. Originally, before the distribution of capital into uh, the broad uh, uh, hands of, in society, we saw decentralized and centralized market-based systems, right? We saw centralized market-based systems like firms, and we saw decentralized market-based systems that relied on the price system to coordinate action. If we wanted things outside the price system to be effective, we continuously had social relations, but to be productively effective, we needed some form of centralization to capture the money and then to redistribute it out to uh, uh, other people. Um, What we see with uh, the rise of non-market production of social sharing exchange is not everything has changed, but a new modality of production has become effective. In addition to government and non-profits that have the power to collect money and redistribute it, we also get social sharing and exchange by people basically bringing their own capabilities, their own computers, their own laptops, their own uh, their own uh, uh, um, um, image, uh, sensors and imaging devices, and their own creativity and sociability uh, to being productive when you add another way of doing things you move from a system that is about the push me pull you between the price system the firms and the government to a new one where everybody has to position themselves to some extent in competition to some extent uh in collaboration and and and, and complementing social sharing and exchange and the dynamic changes because now you have new sources of competition, you have new opportunities both for business and for government uh, 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 processes to engage people, uh, as well as to be scrutinized uh, by people. You get traditional non-profits suddenly having ways of leveraging uh, the funds they have into new domains. Um, how much do we have here? Uh, well, uh, if we look at social sharing exchange as a modality of information uh, of economic production. Uh, the, the critical point here is decentralized authority and capacity to contribute to effective action. Instead of having property, may I create, you have here are some tools plus technical, a technical social platform. Quantitatively, you know Pew talks about more than 27 million bloggers in the U.S., more than 50% of U.S. teenagers actively engaging and contributing to some site. If you sort of do a toy comparison... Uh, and you just take, the first thing you take is the 2002 economic census. All you do is take the number of paid employees per industry times eight hours of an hour, uh, eight hours a day, you get the number of work hours per standard work day in each of these industries, telecoms, ISP, web hosting, newspapers, etc. Now, if you compare that to five minutes per day times the number of internet users, everything gets completely dwarfed. So that can't be right. So what if you compare it to an hour a day for North American Internet users, that is to say one quarter of the average time used uh, TV, that gets you even worse uh, ratio. So I thought that if you compare two and a half minutes of North American Internet users alone, that is to say assuming that each one spends one hundredth of the average TV time on some kind of productive use, you still get something for peer production on the scale, on, on the scale of between the telecoms industry and ISP and web hosting, etc., and bigger than uh, uh the uh number of hours available for movies, broadcasters, software publishers, etc. I don't know if this is a joke or this is serious. Um, it's a way of capturing intuitively just how much human capacity there is out there to be harnessed for creative users. And that's all I really mean this for this for this set of slides to say. Beyond the quantity, there's the question of quality. Why do we think that this would be better? And this brings us back to where I started with uh, the Numi plant, with Wikipedia, with the Internet and innovation more generally, which is to say creativity, intellectual effort, and judgment are not well susceptible to contracting because it's very hard to specify exactly what it is that you're looking for. It's even harder to monitor whether it's being delivered other than looking at the output. And so you get very imperfect pricing. Um, all these concepts of the network organization, the learning organization, Toyota system, capabilities building, uh, all of these are efforts at widely adopting social cooperation-oriented solution within firms. I think that's a lot of what knowledge management ends up being about. Individual employees constantly sensing, experimenting, and discussing in the context of much greater autonomy to act and make mistakes and a form of structured communication for people to talk about the mistakes they made, the experiments they ran, the successes they had, and implementation and routinization to the extent possible, ready for the next uh, uh, round of of learning. Um, So basically what we have is distributed sensing of opportunities for action, solution, experimentation, and adaptation, and if you imagine the knowledge management problem of the 1990s, I would say, if you have a company A and a company B, the knowledge management problem was for a company to even know that it had a contract with agent two, with one of its employees, who, if they were uh, 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 if they were connected with resources one and four, that the firm owned, a good project could emerge it was simply too hard to understand that you had resources two and five that a particular person, Agent A and some company B, could put to use together. What we get with a peer production community is that Agent A8 has the freedom because the resources are in a commons where everybody can use them to the same extent to say, I have an idea. I can do something really cool with R2 and R5. And that's how you get more rapid innovation because you don't lose All of those potential projects that simply are too complex for people to, for for companies that own the resources in separate pools to match agents to resources. Now, if we try to map peer production, which has become so uh, common and so widespread, uh, uh, and create a typology, um, what I've begun to start to think about is how we begin to think of mapping peer production in terms of flow, effort, type, motivation, governance, and collaboration. Flow, many to one, some to some, or many, many to many. Effort, minimal, middling, and high. Type, uh, that's the type of human uh, uh, creativity or insight required from a minimal Turing test through judgment and knowledge, knowledge and creativity. Motivation, from extrinsic money-based to mixed to purely intrinsic. Governance, from, corporate, from a corporate outsourcer who basically says, Here are the, here's the deal, here's what we need to do to a benevolent dictator that says, I'm part of the community, but here's what goes in cases of conflict, to a community or collective self-governance and collaboration, again, with the degree to which is required from simply collated independent action through codependent contributions to active cooperation, I need to adjust my thing to you and it all needs to fit together dynamically over time. If we look at this map and take a few examples of things ranging from Mechanical Turk, from Amazon's Mechanical Turk on one side, through Google or Dig, to Threadless, the company we talked about with the design, to Innocentive, to Learning to Love You More, the the art website, to free and open Source software, to Cultura, to Wikipedia. What we see generally is a move as the type of effort, if you look at the T in the middle, as the type of effort moves from something that is more T1, the sort of the simple minimal Turing test, to T3, more creative, knowledgeable, uh, uh requiring insight, we also see in the motivation a greater emphasis and reliance at the M line on M3, on the on the intrinsic motivation, also we see we also see governance at the g level shifting more toward collaborative governance and less toward corporate outsourcing or a benevolent uh, dictator although there's in their interpretation uh models here we also see greater capability in collaborate in cooperation uh that's more cooperative flow that's many to many uh effort that can be quite high uh, as it's more intrinsic and so we see in a sense a range it's not perfectly lined up. That's the problem, of course, with a linear, with a single linear representation. But we see a range where the simpler the task, in terms of its quality, in terms of the level of effort, in terms of the ability to monitor it, the easier it is to motivate it by money and to manage it from a core to a periphery. And the more we move to types of effort that require more insight and or more effort, uh, we see greater reliance on intrinsic motivation, greater uh, uh, collaborative governance in order for people to actually feel that they control their move, and greater or lesser extent mixing of monetary motivations at all, but a strong anchor in intrinsic non-monetary motivations. Critical here is that decentralization of capacity and authority to act is critical, because if what we want to do is experimentation then people have to be able to experiment. They have to have enough looseness in the system to allow them to collaborate, just like instead of having proprietary resources, we have commons-based resources. That's what drives commons-based strategy is so important, and peer production is the subset with large-scale cooperation layered over it. But more generally, we can talk about loosely coupled systems with permeable boundaries, organizational, institutional, technical, or social that allow people freedom from all sorts of system rules, not only property, as we see with commons-based systems, but also contractual relations within the firm, uh, organizational processes, technical processes, like in the case of, of, of the Internet versus Ma Bell. Um, loosely coupled systems allow for experimentation, and that's exactly what we want from it. We get a learning system. Um, I spent a good bit of time in other work talking about how this also has, affects culture and democracy, but let me move on beyond this, uh, to talk about the fact that when we have loosely coupled systems that allow practical human agency and allow greater human freedom, they also allow greater human freedom, uh, to hurt, to harm, to er. And so what we need is motivated cooperation. Innovation, knowledge, and culture, because they're so poorly specifiable for contracting, require diverse motivations with a strong emphasis on intrinsic motivation, which is what drives me now to be focusing much more of my work on thinking of all of these systems as human systems designed for cooperation. Integrated system design, as it were, how do all of these systems work together rather than interdisciplinary? But critically here, looking at many, many disciplines that have begun to question the rational actor model that assumes selfishness, even though, of course, that's not a requirement of rationality, but it's a simplifying uh, assumption, and are beginning to look experimentally, theoretically, observationally, at human beings um, uh, collaborating. Um, and so... Some of the earliest work is in organizational sociology in the 1980s, work on the Toyota production system, network organizations, Third Way, like Chuck Sable and Woody Powell, experimental economics, uh, 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 which is a whole uh, growth industry, much of which is best known for the behavioral economic work that people like Vernon Smith and, 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 and Daniel Kahneman uh, got Nobel Prizes for, but a lot of the work since the mid '90s has focused actually not on deviations from rationality but on deviations from selfishness. Um, we also see a lot of work in political science, uh, particularly work on the commons that's observational. we see work in anthropology we see more uh, we see a lot of work now in social software design and study of peer production and free and open source software that's mostly heuristic and observational less formal and that's part of what I'm trying to uh, move. Uh, 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 along now with this line of research. Interestingly, we also see a similar move in human evolutionary biology where the 70s largely looked at cooperation through the prism of selfish rationality and explained everything in terms of selfish gene, and increasingly over the last 10 to 12 years, 10 to 15 years even, we're seeing more and more acceptance of cooperation as a basic dynamic and work on cooperation that is not purely self-interested, not even in the long term, but might actually simply evolve within groups or through very vague indirect reciprocity, and there's a good deal of work there and some work in neuroscience as well. Um, The critical insight there is that people are diverse. Some indeed behave like homo economicus, about 30%. More than half behave on some model of cooperation, either conditional, reciprocity-based, or unconditional, something that looks a lot more like altruism. Critically, also in all of these studies, we see that cooperation is sensitive to context. There are lots of arguments about whether cooperation is innate or dispositional, something that comes from the inside or something that you educate for, something that's stable in a person or something that can change over time. What is less debated is that it's also situational. Whatever the baseline of a person is and however much the baseline shifts, in any given context, you can manipulate the system or the environment so that you lead to greater compliance with the cooperative behavior or to deterioration to dog-eat-dog. And that, to me, is the core target of system design, of cooperative system design. Um, So first of all, what's cooperation? Cooperation is a wide range of things that often come under the same term. A lot of game theory talks about only the most minimal uh, phenomenon, what, what I call here strategic mutualism. That's the object of mechanism, design, or game theory. That's to say, rational individuals, fully knowledgeable, acting with guile, under certain designs, will act as though they were cooperative, will effectively uh, uh, re- work toward the maximizing their joint returns. That's a very minimal definition of cooperation. It's been the, f- the, the, the focus of game theory. Then there's heuristic reciprocity. Still self-interested mutualism. But the difference is it's without the accounting. This comes out of some of the work, for example, of Yamagishi on on solidarity. Uh, And the idea here is that people are still self-interested. The manipulations are still, in some sense, about self-interest. But because there's no accounting, lots of manipulations can work to achieve better cooperation, even though they don't align the incentives as a practical matter. When we leave strategic mutualism and heuristic reciprocity, we see what I consider a family that's much closer to what I understand as as cooperation, which is something that is coupled, behavior that is cooperative, coupled with uh, uh, or aimed toward a common goal, uh, uh, coupled with um, uh, a certain kind of commitment, a certain kind of intention toward making the other person better off. The minimal of these is committed mutualism, a commitment to the success of the other, consistent and bounded by success itself, not at at the self-cost. And the other two are collective efficacy, that is to say, intentional orientation toward the success of a common goal, transcending the agent's specifiable individual success. On one hand, an altruism action oriented to achieve the flourishing of other itself, irrespective of success itself. Self sacrifice toward an individual versus self sacrifice toward uh, the group. So I think this is a, a, a richer range of behaviors that we understand within the framework of cooperation that are in terms of intentionality and calculation, quite different from each other, and it's useful to keep them in mind. Um, in the last five to seven minutes of talking, I want to bracket ontological questions, that is to say, are we by, uh, in this case, ontology, not in terms of organizing information, but the question of what we are by nature, uh, and bracket questions of ultimate causes, whether it's evolutionary forces of culture and history or mixed, and instead, what I want to do is see from all of this work, can we extract a series of manipulations and differences that, are, that can characterize the mental of human being. But here are focal points. That if you improve them in a certain way, you will increase the probability that a given dynamic will cooperate. So that when somebody comes and says, how should I design my website? How should I organize my work process? What is the function of a firm picnic? We'll be able to have a structured way of answering that, and that's really the goal of much of what I'm doing now. Um, uh, and, and there are a lot of details in the last uh, 50 slides which I didn't plan to uh, present, and I, of course, won't present, but which are uh, uh, going to uh, are available to you to 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 poke through as we go along. Uh, but I just want to give a quick map of these design levers uh, and how they relate before opening up for questions. So the first one is communication. And communication really has these two different attributes. One is it really challenges the question that the way we come to know what we want and our utilities is by looking inwardly, as opposed to having a more dialectic and dialogic view that says our principles, policies, and preferences are developed in communication with others. And there's a lot of uh, uh, data in the experimental work that introducing cooperation without changing the payoffs at all completely changes the behavior of participants and increases cooperation even in raw prisoner's dilemma uh, to quite significant levels. The other thing is communication is foundational mechanism for all of the other levers I'm about to talk about. The second division that I want is to talk about intrinsic motivations versus extrinsic motivations. Reasons from the inside, affective commitment to cooperate comes from the inside versus manipulations that change my uh, uh, incentives from the outside, which are much more the focus of traditional mechanism design. We have good experimental data to suggest that empathy or humanization matter. The fact that I see the other person's face, the fact that I know something about them as a human being increases cooperation. Solidarity is absolutely central. We know this from organization. We know this from soccer teams. There's a good bit of experimental uh, 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 data as well as a huge amount of organizational data that, uh, 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 observational data that, that supports the idea that solidarity people show in-group favoritism are more cooperative when they are inside a group and they have a strong marking in a group. And and this is almost too trivial to say, other than it's completely not predicted and opposed to the reigning rational actor uh, model. We see this in armies, we see this in nationalism, and obviously not all of these things are good, because of course one of the side effects of solidarity with in-group favoritism is out-group disfavoritism. And so whenever you're trying to build solidarity into a framework, you need to trade off the benefits of greater cooperation within, say, the small team and less cooperation and competition between teams. None of these is necessarily uh, just toggle it all up and it'll be uh, best, but each of these is therefore more of a focal point than a clear, here, dial this up, dial this down. Um, trust is, there's a whole literature that treats trust as essentially the name for all of these behaviors put together that are not based purely on rewards and monitoring. Uh, I think if you're trying to think what trust, what the role that trust plays as a distinct lever, trust is a certain kind of prediction about what the other person will do. It acts as a, as a belief about what the other person will do when not constrained by the system. It only affects my behavior at the margin when I don't have a way to depend, to have confidence in the system to, to force the other person to act A or B. A is good for me and B is bad for me. I trust them when despite the fact that there's nothing in the system that constrains them, uh, I predict uh, that they will act A and I act on that prediction in a way that is cooperative toward them as well. Fairness turns out to be enormously important in the experimental literature. People care about the fairness of outcomes and the distribution. Again, this is diametrically opposed to uh, homo economicus, with the idea that fairness—that all that the individual cares about—is their own payoff relative to option A and option B, or behavior A and behavior B, not their relative distribution, not the relative role of the outcomes, or their, understand, their whatever other mapping may have on theories of desert and what I deserve to have relative to others. But fairness plays a very important role and needs to be built into these systems, uh, which is why you see so much of the work, uh, uh, for example, in the NUMI plant development, of bringing the union in and having co-determination of a certain kind in order to achieve a sense from the workers that they are being treated fairly. Efficacy, the sense of competence and autonomy, the fact that I can do things effectively, turns out to be very important as opposed to the alienation that comes from being in a system that specifies all of the actions and processes. Um, if we look at extrinsic motivations, there's a lot of data to suggest that punishment and reward are still valuable. And of course, once you talk about 30% of people being homo economicus or behaving consistent with homo economicus, uh, that becomes fairly uh, obvious. Here you're, you're manipulating external constraints. The critical thing to understand here. Is that these things don't always work together, uh, and so actually, if we move forward a bit uh, um, and look at the crowding out problem, the thing that makes all of this difficult is crowding out. The fact that sometimes, if I ratchet up the rewards or the punishment, I will displace solidarity, I will displace trust, I will embed a, a, a context of. Fairness, I will simply put people completely with a mind frame that sees them as in the monetized system as opposed to the social system, and therefore change the whole structure of of motivations. Uh, The other thing that plays an important role is norms. People behave in ways sometimes that reflect their commitments, not only their desires or their tastes, um, and introducing norms, managing norms. Uh, uh, communicating them negotiating them the degree to which they can be externally imposed or have to be internally accepted uh, is why norms are not clearly extrinsic or intrinsic sometimes you can impose, impose norms from the outside and they'll stick but they'll still be extrinsic motivations for acting sometimes particularly there's, there's an interesting study that suggests that when people self-choose the norms the levels of
2: compliance
1: are, are much higher um, and finally um, I'm sorry Let's move uh, to talk about cost. Um, again, because all of this still happens for rational actors, cost is important. This is one of the core things that I focused on when I talked about peer production years ago was chunking into small cost uh, uh, um, contributions changes and makes it easy for people to contribute in small portions. And so modularizing and chunking into small chunks uh, reduces the cost of cooperation to a point that it's trivial for people and the, and the, and the incentive problem is not a problem. Um, leadership is not theorized, doesn't have a basis in the experiment, and yet all of the observational work, uh, both online in peer production and in, in uh, uh, management science and organizational sociology, suggest that the role of leadership as well as more generally, not leadership in the sense of one leader but of asymmetric contribution, of people being able to take on more than others, but also be rewarded in some sense with a greater uh, role in defining the, the uh, project and where it goes becomes very important. And finally, uh, exit and entry, or the boundary of the process, and how easy it is to exit and how entry, uh, easy it is to enter, uh, and whether or not you graduate capabilities also is a very important focal point, because it decides who's in and who's out, what you need to do before you become a trusted member, how you build reputation uh, uh, over time. I, just to rewind, it's still here on the screen, so I won't uh, forget it. Uh, I didn't talk about transparency and reputation, but of course, if trust, if fairness, if punishment and reward, all of these social processes, transparent system. You need a system where everybody can know who is doing what to whom, how they've done it to be able to build reputation, so transparency plus memory building reputation, and this function both as discipline for people who otherwise, without the reputation effect, would be selfish and as reward for people who are internally driven by social standing as opposed to money, and the reputation and transparency gives them a certain social positioning that's different as a form of motivation than um, uh, monetary uh, rewards. So these are the 12 design levers and and their general uh, mapping that I suggest. Uh, More generally, if we go back to the idea of freedom as practical human agency, its connection to change and unpredictability and loosely coupled systems, What I'm suggesting here and what I'm I'm working on very heavily now is that as the need for loosely coupled system increases, because of the increasing global complexity of human interaction, because of the increasingly rapid rate of change technological, social, and economic, because we need to constantly build learning systems, not optimal systems, We need these loosely coupled systems. We need greater freedom for practical human agency so that we can learn and change and adapt over time. In order to do that, we have to engage the human capacity for social cooperation and we can no longer believe that we can depend either on fully specified control systems or on fully specified price systems which engage the affection and motivation of only about 30% of the population and ignore the dynamics of cooperation for the vast majority of people. So that's what I wanted to say uh, uh, for uh, in my uh, comments. Um, the rest of the presentation that you have downloaded there drills deep and gives some references and, and examples of each of the various design levers and, and you can look at that later or we can drill into one particular one if it's appropriate for the questions. Uh, But for now, I'd love to open up the conversation.
0: Thank you, Professor Bengler. That that just was superb. I just appreciate all your insights and and, uh, uh, thinking. And let's uh, get underway with the questions. I'm heading for the chat room. Um, Peter, if you're ready with a question queued up before I get there, that's just fine.
2: Okay, maybe uh, let me... Now it's the process one more time. Uh, if you want uh, – anyone who wants to queue up for a uh, question or a remark, please press 1-1 one, one on your phone keypad. But if you're already in the chat room, uh, use the uh, hand button on the chat room. Uh, you don't have to duplicate that on your phone keypad. So press 1-1 if you would like to say something or ask a question, and then we will come to you uh, one by one. Uh, When you are recognized uh, by the moderator, uh, please press a star 3, announce yourself first, make sure you're heard, and then start talking. Uh, After your remarks, uh, please press the star to to mute yourself again so that we don't introduce noise into the recording. All right? Okay. Please press 1-1 now. Uh, we back to Susan.
0: Thank thank you. I'd I'd like to begin with a question from Ravi Sharma. And Pat Hayes, you you will be second.
3: Uh, Yes, Susan. Ravi here.
0: A, a, A little louder, please.
3: Okay, um, how is it now? Uh,
0: that's better, thank you.
3: Okay, um, I will start with the reverse uh, order in which I have typed the questions. Uh, just I
0: one question, please.
3: Yes, just the last one first. Okay. Uh, I, I enjoyed seeing the various factors uh, in the last couple of slides that you showed, Professor Bankler, especially those tie in these uh, – collaborative attributes such as trust and so on. How do you propose we construct uh, them in ontological relationships to derive value from such a powerful observation? Um, Well, uh,
1: um, there's the true answer, and then there's the answer that maybe begins to be useful. The true answer is, That's what we need to study and experiment with. Uh, uh, At the moment, I see myself as primarily in the role of um, explaining why this is the set of questions we need to ask as opposed to uh, um, um, others. Uh, But saying that, I think that um, um, we do have some degree of... of, um, uh, experience with trust construction, uh, not least of which is uh, the ability to chunk behaviors that are mutually interdependent into relatively small components, the ability to mark contributions as distinct so that people can see what one person has done, what the mutual dependencies are, how the degree to which any given particular individual has in the past behaved in ways that have served those interdependencies uh, 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 positively. And so you basically have to build your systems such that people have many opportunities for small-scale risk-taking. You can't really learn about trust without risk. And so you have to introduce uh, 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 the, the feasibility of small-scale uh, defection uh, so that people, through their practice of watching each other, can actually learn to trust each other. Uh, I think uh, the, then, then you'll have to talk about all sorts of other uh, um, um, models of uh, uh, how you create, engage solidarity, how you engage all of these other things, and that's, that's of course, um, going to be uh, uh, important. But since you asked about trust specifically, and since I take trust not as the name of the whole system so that we now have to go back and look at how we engage each of these different levers, but rather as, as the particular lever of um, creating a belief in people about what other people will do. Uh, I think the only way, uh, well, I guess two ways in which we can do that. Uh, one is actual practice at the interpersonal level, which requires structuring of tasks and tagging uh, the information about each task and the dependencies and, and the, the uh, behaviors into, a, uh, um, into a, a, a platform that allows people to build reputation and to break reputation and to see each other. Um, but then we have to go and, and start looking at each of the other design levers and how we investigate them. So you know, One of the things that I'm doing now is trying to run a set of experiments, actually two different kinds of experiments with two different groups on solidarity and empathy. What's the minimal set of interventions? What are the minimal set of symbolic manipulations or past histories and how they can be represented that will actually have an appreciable difference in in, uh, behavioral outcomes? Um, I'd say that I don't know of work that currently exists uh, experimentally, that successfully does that, uh, I, all I can say is I can report that uh, we're beginning to try to do this with a couple of research groups uh, that I'm collaborating with, one in computer science and one in evolutionary biology, and we'll see where we go. But, but that comes back to my initial response, which is I see the position that I'm in as one in which I say, here are the reasons to understand why we absolutely need to solve this problem and here are my reasons to say here is the range of initial research targets uh, for seeing how we operationalize each of these.
3: Thank you, Professor. That's a great uh, insight you have given. Uh, Thank to you. Us. And for the
0: next question, uh, Peter, Peter Yim. Thank you.
3: What, what are
2: we supposed to take? Pat's question first, although um, he did put his Pat hand Pat
0: in the chat room asked that we ignore his his um first question. Pat uh, is... Um,
2: but he had a second question, though.
0: Oh, uh, excuse me. Pat, I didn't see that. Great. Go ahead. Please.
2: Star three. Pat. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Oh, good. Um, Well, okay. actually, my second
1: question is really a comment, and having read through the slides more slowly, I think it's already covered. We went by a little too quickly for me to pick it up on the way, so I'll I'll just – please ignore it and move on.
0: Thank thank you. Uh, Peter. Peter Yim.
2: Yes. uh, uh, Professor Bankler, thank you very much for the great talk. Studies, uh, are there studies that on factors that are detriment to the uh, adaptive or, or the uh, efficacy of the learning system, uh, and maybe what are the levers of those sort of adverse uh, behavior, adverse effects? Is uh, there sort of the, a reverse study?
1: Well, I think uh, uh, I think what. When I say crowding out, well, the the work on crowding out certainly suggests that um, there are uh, there are uh, 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 interventions that can cause decay. So, for example, there's work, punishment. That's why punishment is such a such an ambiguous category because it all depends on how it's structured. Uh, as well as what the baseline culture is, there's wide divergence between um, countries in uh, the degree to which punishment is a meted out by people on people who deserve it in the sense of having uh, the, uh, of having defected, as opposed to meted out indiscriminately uh, in order to. Uh, um, um, uh, revenge, in order to taunt, Uh, it's not clear since people don't actually do surveys why it is that this happens, but there's wide variability. The other thing that happens is that once you actually let multi-round play uh, include punishment, uh, you get completely different levels of deterioration where people get into um, uh, multiple rounds of mutual punishment uh, which completely alienate them from each other. Uh, and cause them. If you then map this onto a learning system, cause them to essentially not cooperate uh, with each other. Similarly, um, uh, trust and transparency uh, are uh, are somewhat uh, somewhat uh, inconsistent or, or in tension with each other, because uh, in order to perfect transparency and perfect control are inconsistent with trust. Because then there's no trusting. There's simply uh, mutual observation and constraint. Um, And so again, there having um, too little transparency can cause you to to have uh, uh, to to have people sneak by. Too much transparency and constraint um, uh, may express a a lack of. a lack of trust and therefore cause uh, people to uh to turn off. There's a lot of work on how not only punishment but even uh uh uh, uh crisp monetized rewards can actually uh decrease people's willingness to uh, uh participate. If you have a process that's understood as largely social and you add money to it, you're gonna end up uh changing its social meaning uh and that's Uh, uh, fairly obvious when you consider uh, uh, what would happen if you left a check on the table after you went to dinner with friends. Um, uh, So, none of these levers is necessarily one way and uh, all good. Um, They, uh, as I said, solidarity uh, uh, is, one form of solidarity is xenophobia uh, and when you embed it within an organization and it's our team against theirs, you can get Poor learning effects because you don't have sharing across teams so this question of how you manipulate each lever that's why I, I use design levers but in many senses they're more focal points than levers they don't have a, di- a necessary direct and linear uh, um, uh, relationship to action norms for example are almost certainly uh, going to be better uh, spec- going to be better uh, um, um, uh, described by a nonlinear uh, relationship because uh, uh, um, uh, because they probably provide a soft constraint within a range of norms and at some point you just feel like you're breaking it and you'll stop considering other calculations. Um, uh, and, and that's how I'm thinking more of what undermines and doesn't undermine. Uh, um, um, the more that you – I'll take that back. In general, though, the more you set up a system where people are vulnerable to each other in substantial ways and at the same time don't find any kind of monitoring and reward system that will at least capture the selfish actors, the more likely you are to lead to a, to a negative uh, cycle and to a breakdown of cooperation. And in the context of learning, cooperation is uh, this practice of, of, on one hand, taking the risk to experiment and learn, the risk of failure, the risk of of exposure as somebody who failed, um, embracing that extra effort, and then sharing the results with others. Those are all the cooperative behaviors. And the non-cooperative behaviors range from the relatively passive non-cooperative, which is to say just taking the safe path, never trying to experiment, never trying to try, and all the way to using the freedom to experiment and learn but then keeping the information to yourself and then ultimately, if you're talking within an organization, trying to extract the benefits uh, externally. If we're talking about a nonprofit learning environment, it might be somebody who ends up keeping their work to themselves and going to try to commercialize it outside of the system. If we're talking about it within a firm – you could be talking about people going and, and starting their own business. Or you could be talking about people collaborating across boundaries with uh, uh, competitors, but then ultimately taking things for themselves rather than sharing within the, co- the, the common platform uh, that's being developed. In each of these cases, the forms of defection can be different. Um, uh, but the core practice of learning being about investing what it takes to understand and experiment, uh, abstract and communicate, and then uh, actually, communicating—that's where I see the cooperation happening in the learning environment. Yeah.
2: Thank, thank you very much, uh, Professor. That's really in- insightful. Uh,
0: so. um, P- Peter, do you do you have? Um, I, I'm I'm seeing one person in the queue. Are you seeing people um, in a in a queue that I'm not seeing, or or can I go ahead with? No, uh,
2: there are so far uh, no. No hands in the phone queue. Uh, Again, if you're on the phone and not on the chat room, uh, not in the chat room, uh, press one one if you would would like to ask a question or make a remark.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Great, thank you. Uh, We have another question from Ravi Sharma.
3: Yes, Susan. (coughs) This question relates to a comparison of Japan, uh, that is Toyota and NAMI plant and GM Uh, having worked five years with GM I have realized one thing is that it's very difficult to bring the culture from one manufacturing organization into another NAMI was set up to commonize some production techniques so that GM plants of future could benefit from it the products made in NAMI are successful And each is branded by Toyota and by GM under their own name. And they sell well. And they go on common manufacturing pattern. But nowhere that assembly line pattern is repeated in recent GM plants that have been constructed. Uh, The second thing is that the the culture of ensuring a worker their livelihood for the rest of their lifetime is paramount in Japan which is missing here, and that has led to perceptible change in com- commitment on part of worker to the product or the process. I would like your comments, Professor.
1: I think this is an enormously important question, um, and I want to agree with you, uh, both descriptively, about the ways in which uh, not only GM but, uh, but the, but the Big three in the U.S. have shot themselves in the foot on, on partial and incomplete uh, 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 and, and not committed implementation of what they can learn from, uh, of what they've been trying. I mean, this, this, the same has happened with their supply chains, uh, 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 with, 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 with um, um, uh, parts manufacturers, where, where Toyota and Honda have very different relationships uh, uh, than, than the big three do. Uh, along similar lines of the degree to which you can commit to a long-term relationship of mutual investment versus the degree to which ultimately uh, you try to extract uh, uh, the last penny of innovation through competitive bidding. Um, uh, and that's just been true uh, descriptively. So the point, though, I want to caution about is that um, there was a time, I would say 1990 plus minus uh, three give or take, where culture and Japanese firms was taken to mean something that's about Japanese culture and uniquely to Japan, as opposed to about organizational culture and something that can be produced and transposed to other countries. And I think one of the things that is, um, the reason that I use the Numi plant uh, uh, example 25 years later uh, is precisely because the same set of techniques that in some sense were understood as uniquely Japanese for a long time, successfully worked with Americans who were the same Americans who two years earlier were disaffected employees. So that suggests to me that the, um, when we say culture, we need to make sure we don't m- misstate or we don't sink That we're talking about something that's intrinsic and basic to American culture, intrinsic and basic to Japanese culture, intrinsic and basic to this culture or that, but rather that in order to effect an organizational change and a a change in the affective commitment of employees and workers to the organization, of the organization and managers to the employees and to the project. You do need a deep cultural change. You can't, uh, you can't just say that you'll keep the same kind of personality as the manager, the same person who will ultimately try to sort of squeeze out the last penny and imagine that they can read a book and implement a genuinely collaborative community. This creates enormous uh, pressure on firms that are serious about doing this to adopt different ways of identifying who are good leaders, uh, uh, different ways of identifying who are good managers, ways of structuring, and particularly for firms like the big three that come without such a history, ways of structuring, if necessary, their contractual obligations and commitments. This is completely uh, uh, counterintuitive to any uh, uh, person who would advise a company and say, keep your options open as much as possible. But the problem is, when you understand that it's in some senses in your organizational, and that's why I said it's organizational, not cultural in the sense of a society or a nation. In your organizational DNA, you're deeply practiced in defecting. Then you need to adopt a commitment, and if necessary, a commitment through contracts that can be enforced by law, to force you into a condition where you will be reliable, where you will be trustworthy as an organization to your employees. And so that's, that's my, 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 my thought on the reason why GM and Ford and Chrysler were not able to replicate the same thing that Toyota and Honda have successfully done here, which is the lack of a genuine long-term commitment to this way of doing things, As opposed to a commitment every three years to say, oh, we've got these new, uh, 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 cool new savings. Let's extract them and squeeze them. And then you lose the whole, uh, the whole possibility of trust. And so one of the problems is for, for a new organization looking for managers, uh, to, to implement this, uh, it's the recruitment process. It's what have you done? That makes you the kind of person where suddenly being somebody who is a project manager in a free software development uh, 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 group of, or who starts and launches a free software development community is a signal of a certain kind of personality that's different from somebody who worked elsewhere and that's good for this particular purpose. Or for that matter, this is, this is uh, 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 again, uh, 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 John C. Lee Brown and the collaborator talked about the, the, the gamer's disposition the fact that how someone has done as a guild leader in, in uh, uh, World of Warcraft is more indicative of many of the things that an employer cares about uh, than where they went formally uh, to work. So it requires a really deep commitment that goes into who you hire and how you hire for purposes of management, and, and as well as the, the genuinely committed processes and, and even contractual commitments uh, to force an organization that tries to transition to stick to it.
3: Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Tremendous insight into behavioral aspects of leadership qualities. Thank you okay. so much. Uh,
0: thank you. Uh, and th- this is Susan Turnbull. Uh, you okay? I've, I've got a question, I guess, um, two parts. Um, do, do you in, envision that we've got a me? I'm, I'm thinking, gosh, how, how many decades will it be before the kind of the um, – conducive conditions and the sort of the, the change social norms become more a matter of fact for us and i mean maybe we're talking you know 50 years but in 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 light of opportunities to bootstrap are there some ways to shorten this without that that crowding issue that you mentioned and then also have you seen second part have you seen Unexpected leaders like a non-incremental jump, um, dealing with people and certification of, across many sectors, um, software certification, high confidence, medical devices. It's, it's broken in that in the different groups are pulling together to explore possibilities, and they're really um, open because they know the old tightly coupled way doesn't. Work Uh, We've seen in the Intel world, they moved to Intellipedia, it was broken. Are are there examples where the the group you wouldn't expect next, like a certification regime might likely move and if they move they offer a leadership kind of a bootstrapping, it's safe and right to go this way approach?
1: That's a hard one. Um, <laughs> did, did, did I understand you correctly in saying that you thought that Intellipedia was broken?
0: No, no, no. In, no, Intellipedia is working. It's, it, it's just working. That's, that's, to me, that's like an example okay. of... Commu- you saying want to Intellipedia
1: expect- is an example of yep. a community that knew that something was broken and yes. shifted over to this model.
0: Yes, yes,
1: correct. Okay. Um, so, first of all, uh, as I said... <laughs> Hard and interesting questions. I don't think it's 50 years. Okay. Um, I think the practice of collaboration is, um, actually, it's remarkably how quickly uh, it has become a widely accepted meme. If you think for a moment of sort of the cutting edge network circa 1999 mm-hmm. was Hal Varian and Carl Shapiro information rules. Mm-hmm. And the big challenge to Britannica, they started, this was their, their, their sort of the image you had to have in your mind of what was going to change the world was what Encarta did to Britannica. Mm -hmm. That was their example. Um, Nobody had the foggiest idea Mm -hmm. about Wikipedia. It didn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Before October of 1998, there were three and a half people who knew about uh, free and open source software before the Halloween memo oh. um, and the beginning of its reporting on, on, uh, on um, mm-hmm. mainstream media. By 99, Red Hat was the hottest IPO. By 2000, the President Task Force on Information Infrastructure already uh, uh, um, uh, embraced open source software for critical infrastructures, and IBM committed a billion bucks mm-hmm. to, um, uh, to uh, uh, free software development. In 92, 93, IBM was still working on OS2. Okay.
2: Um,
1: the speed yep. is worth taking, actually, when you think of how fundamental a different uh, a difference there is in in the kinds of in the belief about what motivates human beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody and their cousin today suddenly is a maven in in uh, uh, cooperation and uh, collaborative value creation and all sorts of. Things like that, which would have been um, a somewhat quirky uh, sideshow uh, uh, ten years ago, um, so I, I, I'm, I'm less convinced that it's 50 years now. I agree with you that systems—I'd say predictors of uh, uh, predictors of where you would see this emerging. I agree. First of all, things that are more connected to uh, young people. Um, um, and so in this regard actually uh, well I was about to say something and now I don't agree with myself anymore (laughs) Um, I was about to say um, uh, education uh, but then I realized that educational institutions are also extremely conservative and so the strong tension between what the students are habituated in doing and what the organizations uh, um, are willing to live with uh, and the fact that they're not yet broken uh, but I think what you've identified in terms of breaking, I think Intellipedia is an excellent example. I think the way in which um, uh, many companies in the IT sector that are not uh, uh, themselves the owners of a very powerful uh, standard or platform, let's say like Microsoft uh, uh, is with the operating system, mm-hmm. are increasingly coming to see free and open source software development as a uh, – um, as a uh, 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 just the way to organize things uh, to get around uh, uh, proprietary uh, inputs. Um, I think the fact that you have so much money at stake in these industries that has been invested in these forms uh, is itself a very strong testimonial. Um, I think that uh, uh, simple practice as people see more. Uh, see and use more YouTube and Flickr and Wikipedia. Uh, the more it becomes part of the habit mm-hmm. um, to to build cooperative systems. Um, where is the next Where is the next breakthrough group um, beyond the IT? Uh, industries is very hard for me. Uh, I, I, I don't have a good prediction of what's... I haven't thought about trying to predict, is the short answer. I haven't thought about trying to predict which set of current practices is broken enough on one hand and sufficiently obviously solvable mm-hmm. through um, uh, collaborative production that that would be the next, the next uh, major step.
0: Thank thank you. Oh, and I just wanted to throw in when you mentioned, I guess it was the pork busters example, that legislation that was passed was the Federal Funding and Transparency Act, and my office provides the um, public-facing wiki for public comments uh, associated with ongoing improvements to that, that site, the implementation of the USA Spending.gov site, which lists how all federal agencies are spending public tax dollars. So there is this—I um, don't want to say incursion—but there, there is this um, um, uptake of the, the more bu- bureaucratic sides of our society to embrace this. And, and actually, three years ago, we developed government-wide policy for data and information sharing with DOD and Intel using an open source-based infrastructure, including wiki. So we've actually got a pretty good beachhead, and it's interesting to see how it how it will unfold. But, but thank you. And we have another next question from Peter. Peter Yem.
2: Yeah, Professor Bankler. Uh, uh, Susan actually asked part of my question, which I have typed out in the chat session, uh, I was wondering if uh, Doug Engelbart's work in bootstrapping of the networked improvement community, which he started uh, in the mid-60s uh, at the Augmentation Research Center out of Stanford Research Institute, uh, SRI International. Now, what, how that comes into play in your envisage of the peer production system in in Within today's virtual communities and enterprises, uh, how does it play uh, in, 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 out in your research?
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. The, the, the big difference being that uh, we we happen to be in a context where uh, the network is much uh, much more ubiquitous. The range and diversity of contributors is much greater, uh, um, uh, and so the the uh, the dynamic is uh, uh, is um, effective and 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 and, and uh, uh, penetrating all sorts of organizations i mean this is this is uh, uh, this is the the, the the simple effect of the the Particular historical moment and its and its technological affordances, uh, uh, which which weren't there uh, 40 years ago, um, uh, but that the basic dynamic uh, uh, is is one of of um, uh, uh, continuous learning. So this is, I mean, the other way in which you can connect this is also to to Eric Von Hippel's work on user innovation. Uh, uh which is to say again this emphasis on continuous improvement through the people who are using um uh innovation through users much more than he's trying to actually quantify that element uh um, uh um and trying to see how much of the innovation comes from users or not very hard to do because they're usually um um even if you ask a manufacturer how did where did the innovation come from they usually forget that it came from a customer saying in and saying, could you do this, this, and that for me, and then could you tweak that? And, in fact, most of the specifications as well as the solutions come from the user, even though it's implemented by a manufacturer. Um, uh, so uh, I don't have much to say other than to say, yes, exactly, this is, this is the dynamic, uh, and it is the dynamic of you do something and then you do something you know, and all and, and you continuously uh, improve in continuous conversation with the actual uh, uh, set of users. I think this is the dynamic.
2: Thank you. And I, I just want to make a remark that some of us I mean uh what I'm doing with uh virtual communities in the collaborative work environment, uh infrastructure that I uh, that, that is used say on Ontolog and in pla- other places that I have, have been supporting are actually still sort of uh inspired by uh Doug Engelbart's work. I
1: mean mm-hmm. you know,
2: all that time hmm Thank you. Yeah. Back to Susan.
0: Okay, thank you. And um you. Pat, Pat Hayes. Or, oh, another question from Pat. Great. Uh Pat, go ahead, please. Pat Pat Hayes?
1: Is it the Obama question?
0: It uh, 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 might be if you're at the chat. Yeah, if you see. I'm at room, the chat. Yeah, see. Is, uh, uh, is
1: Actually, star is, is that the question?
0: Is, is that the correct question, Pat? We we can't hear you.
3: You have to press star 3 And R3, Pat.
0: Oh, he seems, he's lost the call. Yeah, please someone read really the Okay, been... so Go yes. Ahead,
1: sure. um, uh, the only question is, should we wait for him? But uh, uh, oh. <laughs> um, absolutely, uh, first of all, I actually, <laughs> I have a student uh, 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 doing uh, 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 a real-time case study of the Obama and Clinton campaigns precisely on this question of how the Obama campaign is or isn't using uh, collaborative production. I think one of the, it's, it's amazing. Uh, the degree is, so, slow down. Yes. Um, what's very interesting in this regard, and it's particularly useful to compare uh, this with the Clinton campaign, because they both have uh, fairly strong web presences, uh, what's critical here is the relative uh, loosening of control mm-hmm. over the information that is uh uh injected into the uh, uh into the uh as it were. So the the Clinton site is very uh um, is structured as a core periphery. If you want to volunteer, give us your information, we'll send you instructions about how to volunteer. Send us your money. Um, it's it's very much of a of a core periphery communication system with some relatively choreographed periphery-to-periphery uh, uh, communications where they have uh, choreographed videos of testimonials. One thing that, that Obama has done that I haven't seen uh, uh, anybody else do, and that's tied to the, to the um, uh, fundraising system, is uh, uh, introduce the ability for people to create their own campaigns on the My Obama site. That is to say, I want to raise $1,000 by day X and Y. I send it to my friends, but it's my campaign hosted within MyBarackObama. Much greater control over how it's said, allowing much greater control, taking a much greater risk of embarrassing things going on in MyBarackObama.com, but at the same time,
3: engaging
1: people's affections much more, uh, allowing them to take much greater control and local, small-scale leadership over their uh, collaboration. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's probably the most extreme example of how much he has been willing to let control, to let, uh, um, um, uh, supporters take control over chunks of the fundraising and, and, and generally the the, 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 uh, uh, the, the, the campaigning, uh, issue. But it's, it's very clear as you look at the sites that one of the things that's happening there is the degree of really being willing to give people autonomy to go and experiment, as it were, or, or to go and act uh, on their own behalf, including in the fundraising, uh, as compared to all of the other campaigns, which are much, much, much more tightly controlled, and in this regard, much closer to the traditional mass media model of a, of a highly choreographed candidate projecting a, a, a well-designed image as opposed to a candidate that allows the image and the fundraising and the relations to be much more done by uh, uh, supporters through a platform provided by the candidate – but nonetheless, one that gives much greater affordances and creates more risk, needless to say, for the for the candidate. It's exactly that. This is exactly the model of a more, less of a more loosely coupled system, mm-hmm. with greater capacity for autonomy of the supporters to do all sorts of things, engaging uh, 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 a very interesting social dynamics to get people to uh, give money uh, by by having it be a personal appeal from their friend for whom it is their particular goal. Uh, And so you engage that solidarity and the intimacy. It becomes not a request from a remote person, but from an intimate. Mm -hmm. Um, You allow much smaller and more immediate clusters of of supporters to form so that you create a much more intimate solidarity. It maps, actually, quite nicely.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you. Let let me um, uh, check if there are any remaining questions. Um, Peter, do you have any more questions from your view?
2: Uh, not not from the phone system. Let us ask the Second Life folks whether yeah. there's any question in the virtual from the virtual world. I see someone flying in. Oh flying. <laughs> I guess not. Uh so uh, this is Jet Burns and uh I'll ask in World if there's any questions. So uh, okay. we can go ahead with the next one.
0: Okay, we'll wait just a moment because um, we, we don't have uh, any questions here. I'll, I'll just um, say as co-chair, and in just a moment I'll turn to um, my other co-chair for this session, Jean Holm, um, uh, Professor Benkler, I would just like to thank you again for your um, generous sharing of your, your time, and but, but also the extraordinary insights. I know just personally you've helped me to be able to have the almost like the framing language in the in the in the world words to kind of um, hold together a different way of, of seeing and working which I feel fortunate to be in a position where I'm seeing this, this occur but it's just so helpful to have the, um, the, the, the level of both scholarly knowledge but but presented in in such an effective manner and I, I really greatly greatly appreciate it it 's been a delight and i 'd like to turn to um, uh, Jean home and she can invite the final um, questions as as well as tell us about the last session and i 'll just say one of my first examples of what was possible came from the NASA Clickworkers site about eight or so years ago, where people all around the world are mapping Mars, which is this sort of tremendous sense of, you know, contribution. It's, it's chunked in a in a manner um, such that all of the volunteers in the aggregate perform and outperform the six dedicated geologists at NASA who, who really couldn't begin to, to do this work. And I think it's an early... Indicator of what's possible. And Jean, I'm hoping you're there. And if there are any in-world um, questions that you can um, make sure uh, Professor Benkler hears those.
2: Uh, this is jet and it seems we're uh, we're all clear on the Second Life side.
1: Okay, thank you. I, I would just like to say that uh, I. I um, for years, uh, NASA Click Workers was the first slide that I would show to get people to even begin to understand intuitively what it meant to chunk and modularize work and how one could convert a task that required a certain organizational model and a certain funding model into something that was completely different simply by restructuring the workflow uh, uh, and making it available to uh, um, Tens of thousands at that point. Uh, uh, what was it? Eighty some thousand in the first six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, people. So I should have actually brought that because I that that slide. I have slides from, from something like 2001, 2002, that that used that as the as as, as my uh, the epitome.
0: Mm-hmm. And but but then let me just say I can't remember where I learned about that. And I'm actually going to uh, credit you until I can piece it together and it's quite likely that my learning of the story from you all those years ago has actually been an inspiration for me to continue to do you know the work the work that I've been doing so um thank you and and Jane are are you are you with us online I I see your hand in the queue um
2: star 3 okay.
4: And Thank we'll, you, Peter. <laughs> right.
0: Thanks.
4: Thank you. So um, uh, thanks so much. Um, the Quick Workers is a great site, and we've got several other sites at NASA that have evolved kind of along those same um, transitions, and that kind of leads into the uh, announcement for our next and final get-together for this mini-series. Um, on the 29th of May, Andy, Shane, and I, who, uh, with Peter and Susan and a bunch of other people, kicked off this concept I think a year ago now, um, we're going to be trying to bring together all of the learnings that we've, we've gotten throughout this mini-series on connecting people through semantics. And we're going to show some of the things that we've done, both from this kind of collaborative work with, you know, encouraging people in the public to help NASA get its work done, from uh, the quick workers to identifying craters on the surface of Mars at potential landing sites um, and calling for data to looking for stray particles, returns from our uh, comet sample return missions. So um, we do invite the public in for collaborative work, for collaborative scientific work. Um, And we do that through a variety of web-based technologies, but also through some semantic technologies. Um, one of them technologies we'll be talking about next time is the POPS expertise locator that I know we've mentioned a few times throughout this mini-series. A very innovative um, creation on Andy's part. Actually, he's the project manager for looking at how we can um, connect and find experts throughout the agency without having to maintain any sort of profiles or resumes. Good work from the University of Maryland and Clark Parcia in helping us do that work. But um, We'll be giving a sort of summary of some of the kinds of things we've done at NASA, uh, a summary of what we've learned through this mini-series, and hopefully that will engender an open discussion with with all of you. And then also, if you um, recall, at the very beginning when we started this mini-series, one of the things was Andy and I have been tasked by the agency by NASA to Formulated information and data management program and so part of the learnings we've had from this mini-series You'll see how those get reflected in the structure and the formulation of that program And we'll, we'll put that out for your review and comment next time um, I'd like to thank all of you for the amazing um, Participation throughout this mini-series and uh, especially to Peter and the other leadership council members for uh, all of their support
0: right. And uh, again uh, Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And again, Professor Bankler, we, I know I speak for all those on the call. We greatly appreciate your generous sharing and the insights and the expertise and the significant contributions you've made to our society and our world, and in our continuing to to make. And uh, we we look forward to uh, some continued opportunities to um, exchange and share with you and. and Again, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Uh, Please join us for our final session on May 29th. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Amen to that, and thank you for 122 slides. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) No, that's great. They're full of references. I'm having a great time.